sometime in the near future on What's on Joe Mind. You got a dachshund, don't you? I do, yeah. My uh, stepbrother's family has had a long run of dachshunds, and they are, crowd-pleasing term is full of character. Yes. Yes, that's what they say. Big, big personality. <laughs> big personality, little stubby legs. Good everybody. Back on What's on Joe Mind. My Mike Rizzeri. With me today is Racktime Rob. Rob Rizzeri, host of Racktime. How are you today? I'm doing well. And it's a little weird to hear Rob on something connected to the main program, but we are doing a special edition connected to the comic book. This is episode 63, and our special guest is upcoming G.I. Joe with no superlatives writer Paul Aller. <laughs> Yep. Paul, how are you? How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's no trouble. Absolutely. As I said, uh, pre-show, thanks for for taking up the mantle. It's always great to hear new takes on the G.I. Joe story. Yeah, absolutely. Let's turn the clock back a little bit further than that. Where did you get your start in comics? What, What led us to this point? I actually started reading comics when I was like 28, so I got into it pretty late. And I started reading them and trying to write them at pretty much the same time. Um, so yeah, after I got into them, I spent a few years sort of practicing the craft, just writing thousands of pages of script with no intention of trying to publish them, just to sort of learn what I was doing. And then the, a big turning point was when I took a class through Comics Experience, which is a group I'm still involved in now, that was an introduction to writing class that was taught by the Comics Experience uh, founder, Andy Schmidt, who was also the editor of G.I. Joe at the time at IDW. And um, in that class, he taught us to write, like, five-page stories. And so I started doing a whole bunch of them. And my first self-published comic was a collection of 12 five-page comics called Clockwork. And I sent that out to editors, so I just started building and building from there. So, And around that same time, I also pitched a, a G.I. Joe story to Andy, which he, he picked up. And that was my first work-for-hire gig. And that didn't end up being published in its originally planned form. But it turned into the first two issues of my Siren Song arc several years later. So, yeah, so G.A. Joe has kind of been a part of my comics journey from pretty close to the beginning of it. Nice. It's always good to hear when you hear so often the stories of, of the folks that, that get the, that bit by the bug back when they were five and six years old. They, oh, I, I knew I was going to do this from day. And, I mean, speaking from my own perspective, I'm in my early 40s. I have no idea what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> it, it's right, it's right. nice to hear a story of somebody who who maybe happened into this late and, and realized, hey, you know, I, with a little work, I can do this. Yeah, and not, you know, you didn't get left behind by that tide of folks that knew what they were doing uh, before they got to high school. Right. Now, Paul, I know just from like your history that you were working as a journalist first, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it that got you to jump from that form of writing into the comic writing? Well, like I said, it really was discovering yeah. comics themselves. Um, yeah, it was actually when I was still working as a journalist that uh, the way I got into comics was that one of my coworkers was a big comics fan, and he got me in our Secret Santa gift exchange thing that we did at the newspaper. And he knew that I was a uh, fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so he got me the first trade of 
uh, Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men run, mm. which uh, had just, just come out at that point. And I really dug it a lot. And then I went and got this. The second volume had just been released as well, so I went and got that and sort of just started reading more and more comics from there. So it was a pretty long transition. It wasn't like I just flipped the switch. Because um, at the same time I was trying to get into comics, I also left journalism and got a job working for my local government in economic development. And I did that for several years before I got to the point where I could start doing comics more or less full-time. And that was about just about two years ago that I was able to sort of jump in with both feet and leave the day job behind. So it's been a very long, slow journey, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I read that, that X-Men run myself, and I normally don't read X-Men. I've got a collection of the Claremont Burn run and then basically that. Right. It's kind of like, boy, look at the art on that. And I was flipping through it again, but wasn't like all caught up in the the never ending. Yeah, you know, this is year five of the legacy virus subplot, you know, type of thing that yeah. sometimes kind of bogs the books down. It was its own story. It basically became that main X-Men book that all the things fed out of. You could read that and get into it. Absolutely. It's, it's also interesting because uh, Whedon did a really good job. I think a lot of folks, including me, could learn from in, in actually building on things that happened in the past while also making it very accessible to new readers because i did not realize until a couple of years that later when i read morrison and quietly's new x-men run that i was like oh so like a lot of the astonishing x-men stuff was like directly leading out of what happened in those issues and i just wasn't wasn't aware of that because we gave you everything you needed to know i knew it was touching on stuff from the past that was obvious but like i didn't realize it was just the immediately spinning off of what had come right before it in such, in such a strong way yeah, that was the run that immediately came before it, and it was yeah. such a, it was a game changer on that. The first time he came in and just followed that up with another tremendous run, I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, All right. As soon as they were done, like, I bought like, like the first issue, the next one just went, nah, we're back, eh, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the, the golden age had ended, <laughs> and the gods had but gone I, off to but, Valhalla. But again, that story was finished, and I felt like, oh, this is complete. Yeah, absolutely. He said what he needed to say, and now is a good spot to jump off. I'm not going to regret going, oh, I should have stuck. Look at that. It's an X-Men book. You always have to have the, the parachutes ready. That's right. <laughs> so I guess going after it, <laughs> that's going to get us some hate mail. Yeah, Going <laughs> after it from another, another aspect of this, where did you first get interested in G.I. Joe? I know I should pretend like it was, you know, when I was six. But um, <laughs> honestly, it was when I first got into comics, it was reading the IDW run. When I was a kid, my, my older brother was really into G.I. Joe. So, like, I watched the cartoon as a kid, obviously, because I'm, I'm 40 years old. And I don't think there's a 40-year-old male in America who didn't. Um, and I really enjoyed it. But, yeah, my brother was the one who was, like, a real big toy collector and all that. So it was kind of, like, perceived as his thing. You know what I mean? Then as an adult, like, the, the IDW, the early IDW run just really blew me away and i really got into it really heavily there and then a couple years later i went back and read the entire uh, real american hero run and caught up on that and sort of went from from there and like i said my first job was writing a story that tied into those early idw issues it was um right after uh, cobra commander was assassinated mm-hmm. and andy mentioned in an interview that they had that the notion was that in in their comic Cobra Commander was a job rather than a man, uh, and that he kind of casually mentioned at some point we might go back and tell stories about past Cobra Commanders. And so I like immediately emailed him and was like, "I would like to write that, you know, <laughs> like, like let me let me pitch you on a a book about Cobra Commanders throughout history. I would love to do that." And he was like, "Yeah, sure, send me your pitch." He ended up really digging the stuff I'd come up with, and like I said, it's like the first two issues of Cy- my Siren Song arc are all about 
delving into those past Cobra Commanders, like a pirate Cobra Commander, you know, a Cobra Commander who was in like ancient Italy and different things like that. So, yeah. That was a neat take from that part of the series. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. There are are plenty of complaints by the longtime fans, and some of them are valid about the the IDW run. I think, by and large, it gets a bad rap simply because it's not what Larry Hama did, which is kind of the curse that every Joe Ryder has come up against at some point or another. You're not Larry Hama. And, and that's, again, not a diss to, to Larry either. It's just that there's plenty of great stories to be told within G.I. Joe, within that universe, and your take as Cobra Commander action hero is certainly different and something that was was fun to explore. You know, Cobra Commander's a gig. It's not a not necessarily a guy, and and different right, people right. have had the job through the through the ages, and yeah. just the fact that it's not just one man gives Cobra much more of a an Illuminati kind of feel. You know, they've just always been there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it yeah, was a lot of fun. It increases that looming threat factor a little bit. Yeah. Right, that, that secret society lurking in the shadows, you know, where it's like, Ooh, we've done this for years, and we've we ha- you haven't even known what we've done. <laughs> right, right. An extra element of sinister. So, Paul, your time as a journalist, what stands out in that for you? What did you cover? What did you get to do that you're especially proud of? That should be easier to answer than it is. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, most of the time, especially toward the end of it, I covered a lot of small-town government stuff. I think I enjoyed the fact that I dove into what my publisher at the time called like the story behind the story. And he actually would sometimes ask other reporters, like, why don't you just do like a story behind the story like Paul does? And that really pissed them off. But, um, <laughs> I would do stories that added a lot, a lot of like depth and context to the issue rather than just saying what was happening now. It would go and, and I worked for a weekly, so we had the ability to do that because, you know, we, we didn't have to say, here's what happened yesterday. And in fact, there was a daily newspaper in town, so they were already doing that. So that gave us the freedom to do that a little bit more. Oh, I know what the actual answer is. (laughs) (laughs) I did a story about a guy named uh, Marvin Beagler who um, was executed. And he had murdered a a husband and wife who were allegedly involved in the drug trade and he saw them as competitors and like they they had two young children including a baby who was in the trailer when he murdered them another kid who was like with their grandparents thankfully and i did a very long feature piece that came out right after his execution where i talked to his family i talked to his son his son couldn't do the interview ahead of time so i talked to his son literally like the night of his execution, like after he had been executed. I talked to the victim's family. Um, I went really deep into the case and the police, and I went to his final appeal, and I wasn't able to talk to him, but I got a lot of quotes directly from him from that appeal, because with your final death row appeal, they, they really talk to you in depth about not just the crime, but also like your entire life and what like led up to the crime. And so he talked about his experience uh, as a Vietnam veteran and how that kind of messed him up. And he talked about his childhood. He talked about like, getting into the drug trade and how that all, you know, very candidly. And yeah, I just ended up doing a very long feature story about this guy who had just been executed that like didn't hand wave away what he had done, but also was a very complete picture of him as a person, you know, and that's the kind of thing that, like, if you lived in a like, large city where people were, you know, are sentenced to death row fairly often, it'd be a little 
cumbersome to do every time, but because I was in a small town and this was like the first death penalty case that they had ever had there. And he was like, the only, you know, the only Kokomo citizen I'd ever been put on death row. I felt a warrant early in depth look at him. So yeah, that's a, that's a story I'm really proud of. Sorry, I I rambled on quite a bit there, but yeah. No, that's okay. That was, that was certainly a rambling question. So we, we, that's (laughs) that's what we're after there, man. You're playing the game. That's good. So it, it should be noted that you for a long time were a neighbor of our good friends up in Kokomo, Kokomo Toys. Yeah, absolutely. Up in mm-hmm. northern Indiana. Going back to our, our email correspondence that led to this, apparently you were at one of the coil cons that we ran back when we were doing that gig. I was, yeah. I think it may have been the last one. It was the year that uh, Siren Song was coming out. I think I had like the first couple issues. Um, and I went up there and, and um, met up with my buddy Robert Atkins. I think he liked, let me sit at his table for a little bit and sell some copies of the issues. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> it's funny how the universe weaves its web like this, and then you find out about it all later. But right, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that was the last one we did in Kokomo. Unfortunately, we had to get out of town. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I make it sound they like ran us out of Kokomo. But no, it just, just Todd <laughs> was leaving that lot. He, he doesn't own that property anymore. and There wasn't anywhere right. else in Kokomo to do it. We either had to do huge room, which we weren't quite ready to do, or we had to find, you know, the other options were all smaller than that. We were too big for that. So it was more just, there just wasn't a good venue for us in Kokomo anymore. Yeah, absolutely. That show's still going. It's, it's, it moved to Indy for a year, and we had a good show in Indy, and it's been in Dayton, Ohio for the last several years. So if you get the chance, get out to CoilCon this year. I got the ash can the other day uh, over the Comic Carnival flip through it and it's got me really excited to check out the first issue is this coming out of the beginning of the book or jumping right in as an intro into that scene or you know do we have like um what's the background of this take on gi joe right the ash can is the first five pages of the series so we really do just drop you right into the middle of it so yeah the, so the idea of this gi joe series is that it takes place in a war. First off, I should say that it's a brand new continuity because I think that every time IDW has done a reboot before, it's always been at least loosely connected to everything that's come before. So this is the first time that uh, it's just a brand new clean slate. You can jump in from the beginning. And that's, I guess, a a good and a bad thing, uh, depending on your perspective, uh, because it's a good thing for several obvious reasons. But the other thing is that that allows us to really do a lot of very different things with this, which, as you're saying, can meet some resistance from... From some fans, um, yeah. but I'm hoping that people will check it out and, uh, and keep an open mind. So the idea is that uh, it's a world where Cobra is not just an underground terrorist group, but is a dominant political force, which has actually like taken over uh, very large swaths of America and of the world. And G.I. Joe, rather than being like a, a special ops unit, is run by the military, but it is recruiting civilians to be uh, spies and assassins and saboteurs. So basically, rather than being based on special ops units, it's more based on the World War II uh, Office of Strategic Services or in Britain, the Special Operations Executive, organizations that during World War II did actually recruit civilians for this very purpose, for espionage, for irregular warfare, and actually made a huge impact on fighting Axis powers and helped us win the war. The war is still going on uh, when the book opens, but they're like, what they're basically saying is like, you know, we're going to lose. So there's a sort of a sense of a sense of fatalism that pervades everything. Um, and Chicago in particular is pretty much as occupied territory as the book opens. But yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, uh, 
just jumping right in and 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 sort of plunging into everything. And um, it's not where you would typically expect a story to begin. It's kind of almost where you expect a story to end if it if it had a real bummer of an ending, I guess. <laughs> 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 and then we go from there, and you find hope and 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 honor and duty within this very dark place. But I. I I say it's a dark place that the characters are in, but it's not like it's not a dark book, you know. Like it's a it's yeah. a book that's that's fun and 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 filled with hope, uh, even though the circumstances within it uh, are fairly fairly dark. Yeah, a bleak opening, but they still feel we can make this better as long as we're still kicking. As long as some of us are still kicking, like with Duke's comment, well, and on behalf of the United States, I accept your surrender. You know, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That little cheeky cheeky comment he's making there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I, I love that little line. It's like kind of like Duke from the cartoon, just going, hey, you know. <laughs> right, right, absolutely, absolutely. You can hear it being read by Michael Bell. <laughs> yeah. So, Paul, you and uh, your artist, Chris, have been very good about sneak previews and, and giving yeah. us a, an advanced look and, and at some of the characters. And if you're able to tell us, I don't want to put you on the spot. but. Sure. Like, which of the classic characters are going to be in the core of your your book here? It kind of breaks up into two groups. It's like you have the the military people who are sort of the instructors and heading things up, and then you have the new recruits. On the military side, General Hawk is like the global leader of of GI Joe, and then below him you have Duke, Scarlet, and Stalker, who are all instructors, and Duke and Scarlet in particular are kind of running the program on a on a day to day basis. Uh, then the field team, the new recruits they have, Roadblock, I think we've already revealed, uh, is in it. Mm-hmm. And we've also revealed that uh, Jinx is in it as well. Tiger is the new character you've seen so far. And then rounding out the field team is two new characters that we'll be dropping on Twitter, uh, I think, like in either next Monday or the Monday after that. I think people really, will really dig a lot. So, that, But that's just our main A team. We also have other field teams that we'll be seeing, and there's a lot of familiar faces in them as well. So there's there's a lot of old school Joes in it, Uh, and uh, as soon as issue two, you start seeing like brief cameos from people who you'll see later on. So um, yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people will show up that I think will will get people excited. At the same time, there are you know other elements of GI Joe that we're going to be rolling out a little more slowly than people might expect as well so <laughs> that's very cool though it, it's one thing that i think particularly the old cartoon always lost track of is, is the logistics of running this huge military outfit so having different groups in different yeah. places and having the geography feel real you know it takes time to get from one place to another uh, especially yeah, under the circumstances they're in it's a touch of realism in a fantastic situation which is it's always the line that that as gi joe readers we we have to have to ride on right as you've been writing the series have like any of the characters taken on like that little bit of a life of your own where you're starting to see i wasn't intending to go in this direction with this character but maybe this could work yeah i feel like nearly all of them i try to do interesting things with them uh scarlet has some very interesting stuff happen to her in the first couple of issues that i think people maybe won't be expecting She's a little bit more of a brawler in our story. And she be like, she's, she's been tough in the past, but we kind of like pushed yeah. that sort of like, we pushed Brawler Scarlet even a little bit more than it's already been in the past. So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, Roadblock has a really interesting arc in the first in the first few issues uh, that I think will be, will be unexpected um, and will kind of underline the fact that 
this is a book about these civilian recruits, not seasoned military people. So he'll be dealing with something that you typically wouldn't see G.I. Joe characters dealing with because when we see them, they're typically already extremely advanced in, in combat operations. Yeah, they're typically already the best of the best, et cetera, et cetera. They've exactly know, career right. military guys in their late twenties, early thirties kind of deal. Yeah, and that's that's not the case here. Yeah, so, totally. as as far as the cast goes, maybe it's just the, the the way the art is. I get the impression that everybody in the book is younger than that. Not everybody. Um, yeah, I should say the artist Chris Abenhouse. She's just uh, he's he's doing an amazing job uh, at redesigning the characters and also just his line work and his storytelling is just incredible. And uh, Brittany Pierre, our colorist, I'm also really thrilled with what she's been doing. Um, but yeah, some of them, I would say, some of them are younger. It varies. It varies from person to person. I would say. Okay, and for I love the the art on the book for what we've seen. Oh, thank Absolutely. you so much. It's, I really appreciate fantastic. that. Yeah. Chris actually, um, back in that Siren Song arc, there was one story about a Cobra commander and how Dante Alighieri was an agent of Cobra, and Chris uh, drew that drew that story, and that was when we first connected and first got to know each other. And we've we've worked uh, together on various things since then. We did a book for Aftershock together called Monster Mechanica, and I was really thrilled when uh, he was brought on board for this as well. So, yeah, that's very cool. Did you did you have any say in that? Did you able were you able to pitch them to him or? I did, yeah. That's pretty rare, honestly, for someone at my level. Um, <laughs> but I did recommend him to the editor, and he's like, "Yeah, sure, we'll, you know, we, we'll we'll consider him." And I was very happy to find out, you know, several weeks later that they considered him and given him a tryout and decided to to go with him. Yeah, I think it's an excellent choice. I, I know Rob mentioned in in uh, in rack time, he's got a real good feel for for action, and his line works real clean. I, I think it'll it'll go very well for. Reader, an established readership that's that still thinks in terms of that '80s cartoon. I think it, it, there's some similarities there. I think they'll dig it. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. I love the little subtle color nod on Duke too. If you've ever seen the traditional figure, the tan shirt and the green pants, and Duke has the tan jacket and the green pants. Yeah, so just a, another little visual cue. Yeah, this is Duke you're looking at. Yeah, he, he's been doing a lot of that. Sometimes it's a lot subtler than that. Like Jinx, her outfit is black, and he gave it like red piping along the, the edge of it to sort of you know have that nod to her being Jinx. So yeah. How much has being the writer for GI Joe, like what what have we done to you? Like, have you turned into a guy that's got a bunch of old toys on his shelf? Or? <laughs> no, not yet. Um, <laughs> the only toy I own is, is, is a hiss tank. And uh, yeah, in my in my Siren Song arc, there was actually a toy piss tank in, in an orphanage that Cobra was running on. Like one of the Joes like stepped on it as they were walking through. So I I picked that up either at a con or I think I might have picked it up at Kokomo Toys actually. But yeah, no, I mean I'm sure that as I go, like I write a lot of Ninja, Ninja Turtles stuff. Um, and like I've been a Ninja Turtles fan all my life, but I'm 40 years old, so like you know I didn't have a lot of like Ninja Turtles stuff around my apartment before I started writing it. But I do now, like some stuff I've picked up, and a lot, a lot of people have like given me Ninja Turtle stuff uh, as I've been writing it. So yeah, like when you work on a property for a while, you definitely accrue things from that property, and I have I have no problem with that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to in, in a few years having a USS Flag aircraft carrier toy in the middle of my living room. <laughs> it doubles as a coffee table. It, it makes a nice coffee table. It's it's a yes. definite definite conversation piece. Right, exactly. I see a conning tower in that coffee table. Hey, is that a loudspeaker on it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Call out to the dog from across the apartment. 
<laughs> Whatever you do, just don't put your beer on bazooka. There you go. <laughs> but, um, he will drink it. He's from Minnesota. That's <laughs> all they do up there. Paul, what else do you want us to know about your personal comic library? What what else should we be checking out that, that you're involved with? People enjoy Samurai Jack. I have a Samurai Jack series that is coming out uh, right now as we speak. Quite a bit of like odds and ends in, in licensed comics recently. I did a clue series a couple of years ago that I'm pretty proud of. Um, I think if you're if you're looking at my GI Joe stuff, I kind of feel like the best place to look is a lot of my creator own work because I'm sort of putting a lot of like my creator own style into this book. So um, Monster Mechanica, like I said, is a previous collaboration between uh, Chris and I. So I think that gives you a good idea of how we work together and the style that we use. Uh, I wrote a book called Tet that also came out through IDW that was a, uh, a Vietnam War comic, very different from, from G.I. Joe, but shows you a lot of my influences and my way of thinking about what war does to people and to a society and um, you know, some of the things I'll be reflecting in this, in this book as well. So, yeah, just read all my books. Just, you know, look up my name and buy everything I've ever written. And that's, really, that's really the best way to prepare for, for this book. There you go. That's, that's selling like a pro right there. Mm-hmm. So what else do you want us to check out? All of it. Buy all yes. of it now. Exactly. Get everything. Yeah, go on, jumping back to the Joe characters really quick. Have you used any of the uh, established file cards or any of like the past comic runs in your characterizations? Or are you just basically saying, let's do a new take on Duke or Snake Eyes or you know even somebody minor? I'm definitely working to stay true to the characters. We might change some of their, you know, demographic info, some of their outlooks on life if they're civilians rather than career military people. But I'm still treating the characters the same way I treat properties in general, which is that I'll change things to suit my story, but I try to stay true to the the heart of what people love about about the character or about the property. I liked how Major Blood came to the forefront in, in in that preview. Are we going to see any more of the old Cobra gang in there? We talked oh, about yeah. there, like what Joes are going to be major. For sure. Major Blood is a, a very, very large part of the book. Dr. Mindbender uh, shows up in, I think, issue two. And yeah, we were kind of like slow rolling out the Cobra guys. So you won't see them pop up as fast as you would expect, but you will you will be seeing a whole lot of those guys pop up for sure. And um well, no, I shouldn't say that. Never mind. <laughs> there's, oh. one element of Cobra, there's one element of Cobra that I'm really excited to see, like what people see that we did with it. Because like, I know for a lot of old school fans, this is going to be like something they don't want to hear. But we uh, there's a particular element of Cobra that we made more realistic and grounded, but I think in like a really fun way. Um, and they don't show up until like issue three or four. So I'm like talking way ahead of myself, but I'm really excited about it. That's so vague. It'll be just in time for Christmas. Think of it that way. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you heard it here first. Now, Dreadnought's responsible businessman. (laughs) We are doing something interesting with the Dreadnought's as well. Yeah, actually, I think people are going to hopefully dig what we do with the Dreadnought's. They're not responsible businessmen, but but they have a very cool place in uh, this story. They're the Chicago City School Board. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But... uh, the, speaking of established characters, there, there's kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Where's Snake Eyes? <laughs> right. I don't know if it's the first G.I. Joe series to ever not have Snake Eyes in issue one, but um, it doesn't happen very often. I don't know. That's a good question. I feel like it's stupid to be coy and be like, who knows if he's going to show up? Because, of course, Snake Eyes is going to show up. Like, I'm not going to 
act like people are stupid. But um, I, he does show up probably a lot later than people would expect. And in a, in a way that people probably won't expect. A mystery. Mm-hmm. That's all right. I'm down with that. Yeah, cool. that's cool. Snake Eyes is such an overwhelming force that mm-hmm. I really wanted to hold off on introducing him for a while to sort of give the other characters room to breathe and give the new status quo room to be set up before we bring him crashing into the party. Yeah, that's, that's a good call. I love Snake Eyes as much as everybody else does, but there comes a point when enough is enough. Like, he, <laughs> like Snake Eyes is the one character in G.I. Joe that has reached that point of saturation in popular culture. Like, he's Batman, he's Wolverine, he's the Punisher. He's a neat icon, but you're almost tired of him because they seem right. to have done everything with him that can be done. That's one yeah. of the things that I like best about Larry's run right now is that Snake Eyes is dead. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure it's going to stay that way forever. I'm not sure it's going to stay that <laughs> right. way. I'm not sure it's going to stay that way for too much longer, to be honest with you. Yeah. But the fact that he's dead and, like, he's still influencing the story. Right. He's not even there, and it's still, at least part of the time, still about him. So I'm glad to hear you getting away from him a little bit or making the conscious decision to at least spread out his appearances or what have you. Right. Yeah, and like in general, because we have such a large cast, there's no character who's going to be in every single issue of this book. It really is going to be a thing where we're focusing on different characters and different aspects as we go. That's good. There's a lot of G.I. Joe to go around, so it's that it is, sure is yeah. that is very much a nod to the, the old series and that you Absolutely, just didn't, yeah. didn't have everybody around all the time. Yeah, and another nod to the old series is that at the beginning, at least, um, and for the foreseeable future, we're pretty much basing them around one-shots. We might, uh, at some point, a little later in the run, start maybe doing some like two-issue arcs, but yeah, for the most part, like, these are going to be self-contained training and mission stories in, in each issue as we go. And obviously there's going to be telling an overarching story as we go, but it's not going to be the sort of traditional current comics thing of every four to five to six issues is one big story and then you go on to the next big story. I like that approach. Uh, that's old school. Yeah. Basically, come check this out every week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't start here and end here because you think this story is entering. No, just come for this story, but stay for the groundwork that's being laid. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that old Joe run too had those world-building elements. You had that undercurrent of a main story that was going to come to a head eventually, but there would be sidetracks. Yeah, absolutely. That maybe tied in and maybe didn't really. It was a bit of a red herring, but all part of that river. Right. So, Paul, you came to G.I. Joe late in the game, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. You ingested the old Marvel series as a whole later on, and, and you weren't big on the toys as a kid, and, and here you are writing G.I. Joe. What oddball character is your favorite? <laughs> like, like Rob and I, our, our favorite oddball characters are all the guys who came out between 82 and 85, 86, that, that run. You know, we're, we're, we're in elbows deep since, since we were small, small children. So it's easy to figure out our favorite oddballs. But you weren't in then. So who, who sticks out to you in your experience? Barbecue really cracks me up because it's just such a transparent thing that's like... <laughs> We could sell a toy that's a firefighter. That'd be cool. So let's put a firefighter on the special ops team. And then, you know, Larry's like, okay, I got to have a mission where they need a firefighter now. So, <laughs> so I guess I'm probably, I probably like it for the wrong reason than what you're talking about. But that just, that really cracks me up. <laughs> um, did, didn't, didn't they have him show up and jump on a hiss tank with his axe swinging around or something? It was something like that. Yeah, something he crazy. Had a, he had yeah. A, 
production. Yeah, yeah. And then really uh, never, never seen again in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. The tripwire effect, so to speak. Right. Tripwire well, sh- kind of, shows up, falls kind of, down a couple times, and then then you don't see him again. Yeah. He is kind of the last guy you want to see because if if he's there, something's burning. Right. That's true. Yeah. I also I, I like Lightfoot quite a bit. I don't know if that would be an oddball. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure what what qualifies as an oddball character and what doesn't. But yeah, honestly, there's a lot of them. There's one character who shows up in issue two. Uh, I think people will be surprised to see. He's not not an oddball. Always one of the original guys. One of the original guys who sort of has not been in a lot of the more recent stuff. But yeah. Anyway, sorry. That was like that was again very vague. It's all right. Short fuse at issue two. You heard it her first. (laughs) Everybody loves short fuse. (laughs) Yeah. Once they remember who he is, yeah. They forgot who short fuse was somewhere around 1984. (laughs) So, Paul, what else do we need to know? We've we've covered a lot here in terms of of your book and your history. What else? What have we missed to this point? I'm not sure. I think it'll be a really fun book. Um, I think it's going to be a book that, like, even though, like I'm saying, it's it's, it's very different than the G.I. Joe stuff you've seen in the past, it really is true to the spirit of G.I. Joe. It's a book about camaraderie. It's a book about duty. It's a book about, you know, heroism in the face of an overwhelming force. And it's a book about, you know, this very large, sprawling, interesting cast of characters of people who are, you know, laying their lives on the line for us and trying to do their best to save the world. And I think people will really enjoy it. We're working our butts off on it, and I, I think it's paid off. The first issue is is in the can now. I just saw the the PDF of the final, like lettered and colored, and I think it came out really well. I'm very excited about it. So, and yeah. So, and also, I guess I would say that if you want to read it, uh, the best way to make sure you can is to pre-order from your comic shop, and you have like two or three more weeks to do that. So, just call your local comic shop, or if you don't, uh, if you haven't read comics in a while and you need help doing that, hit me up on Twitter, and I'll help you find a comic shop and walk you through the pre-ordering process and you can go from there there you go see personalized attention yeah, absolutely are, are you ready though i mean what if you have thousands of fans popping up saying hey paul good friend paul help me out with that this. that would be amazing that's <laughs> like the you just described like the best case scenario all right excellent yeah. <laughs> idw and hasbro would be coming up to you hey paul Nice job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you'd have to stop writing because they'd offer you a vice president's job. There you go. <laughs> hey, this guy knows how to sell G.I. Joe. It's, it's, uh, uh-huh. Let's get him signed up on the package. Let's get him the key to the employee washroom, yeah. executive washroom, or whatever it is. I don't know. Great. S- spoken just like a guy who's lived his entire life on the bottom couple of rungs. <laughs> Rung solo, they does get the washroom. Just... Yeah, they point me out back by the the shipping doors, and then there's a there's a hole we dug behind the bushes. Make sure Excellent. nobody's looking. <laughs> Guys, quit looking. Anyhow, then that's that's where we go off the rails in the mighty what's on Joe Mind fashion. <laughs> so it's probably a good place to bring this to a close. Paul Aller, <laughs> thanks so much for your time this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Hey, it's no trouble. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely, yeah. I'm fired, more fired up for this than I have been about a new Joe comic in a while, and that's that's going back a couple of creators. So awesome! We're glad to hear that. We're really looking forward to this. Next month cannot come soon enough to get this premiere in our hands. Very cool. Very cool. Anytime you need us, man, give a call. We'll be there for you. Sounds good, man. Appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is Paul Aller. This is What's on Joe Mind, Special Edition sixty three. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the day. Hey.